1936, a perplexing triple murder occurred on South Braddock Avenue in Pittsburgh. Described as the ideal family, five-year-old Bobby, three-year-old Janice, and their mother, Eleanor, were found brutally slain inside their luxurious apartment on June 18th while the husband was away from the home. To this day, no one is quite sure who carried out this gruesome act, though some suspect that Eleanor might have been the culprit, while others insisted that the husband, Martin, had orchestrated the tragedy. By all accounts, the family of Martin J. Feely was the envy of Pittsburgh's Point Breeze neighborhood. Eleanor, lauded as the ideal image of an American girl, was a graduate of Smithfield College in Massachusetts and of Columbia University in New York. The orphan daughter to wealthy and sophisticated parents, Andy, as she was known to her friends, seemed to have the world on a platter. She was young, intelligent, athletic, and beautiful. She held degrees in law, child psychology, and physical education. Yet, she put her career on hold to get married and to start a family. Eleanor Buckley and Martin Feely were married at Christmas time in 1931 in a charming chapel in Valley Forge. She quickly settled into a life of utter contentment with her handsome and dynamic young husband. Martin, a physical education professor at the University of Pittsburgh, was away in New Jersey planning the family's upcoming vacation when this triple tragedy took place. It was the most perfect marriage I ever knew, an entirely wholesome relationship, remarked Thelma Mertz, a family friend who worked as a secretary at Pitt's physical education school. John Dombach, who was Martin's superior in the physical education department, expressed similar sentiments. He remembered that during the few weeks that Martin came to live with him because Bobby was infected with scarlet fever and Eleanor didn't want her husband to catch it, the young man seemed utterly lost without his family. Marty was born to be married, added Mertz. He was the most completely married man I know. On June 6th, Martin left Pittsburgh for the Life Magazine's boys' camp in Pottersville, New Jersey, of which he was a director. Before departing, he left a note for his secretary, Miss Mertz. Out for lunch, back September 21st. His family was to join him in New Jersey on June 19th, but on the eve of their planned departure, Jan, Bobby, and Eleanor were found dead inside their seven-room luxury apartment on the first floor of 312 South Braddock Avenue. The rooms were in perfect order and all the windows, except for one, were latched from the inside. No fingerprints had been left behind on the doors, knobs, or windowsills. There was no sign of struggle and no reports of screams by the neighbors. Suspicion immediately fell upon Eleanor Feely. Were Marty, Andy, Bobby, and Jan the perfect American family as everyone had previously believed? It was the landlord, Charles Young, who discovered the crime scene early on the morning of Thursday, June 18th. The 48-year-old landlord, who lived in the third-floor apartment with his wife and 17-year-old son, Fred, said that he couldn't sleep because he hadn't seen or heard from the Feelys in almost 24 hours. Knowing that Bobby had been stricken with scarlet fever, Charles began to worry over the silence. He telephoned a mutual friend, a high school teacher named Austin Group, believing that Eleanor and her children might be there. They were not. Young put on a robe, grabbed a flashlight, and went down to the terrace that slopes around the majestic house to check on his tenants. The back and front doors were open, though the screen doors were latched from the inside. He shone his light through one of the bedroom windows, and what he saw chilled his blood. 
He found Eleanor face down in a pool of blood from a stab wound tied to a radiator pipe with a hemp rope that had been fastened around her neck. Into this rope, a claw hammer had been twisted until Eleanor was strangled. The hammer was found under her body by the police. The children were found nearby strangled to death before an ice pick had been jammed into their skulls. Bobby lay on his back on a cot, wearing khaki overalls embroidered with his name in red thread and the cord from a bathrobe tied tightly around his neck. Janice was in her crib, face up, dressed in blue and white flowered pajamas. A hemp rope had been wound tightly around her neck. The ice pick was on the floor to the right of Eleanor. After viewing the gory spectacle through the window, Young raced up to the second floor, which was occupied by his father-in-law, and called the police. When they arrived, Young snipped a hole in the door screen, lifted the latch, and let them inside. In addition to the hammer and ice pick, they discovered a red-handled screwdriver beneath Janice's body and dishes and a butcher knife on the table. Their luggage had already been packed in preparation for their trip to New Jersey. Pointing to the lack of fingerprints on the doors and windows and the lack of clues pointing to forced entry, city detectives immediately concluded that it had been a case of murder-suicide. James Davidson, the county ballistics expert, and Inspector Howard Forner agreed. The deputy coroner, however, scoffed at this notion. According to the deputy coroner, John Arts, Eleanor had been tied to the radiator with a sailor square knot, hardly the kind of knot a woman would use. In addition, all three victims had been stabbed in the left temple. If the mother had been right-handed, it would have been unnatural for her to stab herself in the left temple. If she had been left-handed, it would have been equally unnatural to stab the children in the left temple. Also, detectives discovered one thumbprint on the hammer, and it did not belong to Eleanor Feely. I don't care what the police say, declared Deputy Coroner Arts. Some fiend, some ghoul murdered these three. The landlord, along with friends, relatives, and neighbors, agreed with Arts. Also supporting this theory was Grace Stansberry, the nurse who had lived at the home during Bobby's illness. I can't believe she would end her own life, said Stansberry, and certainly she would not kill those darling children. The nurse admitted that Mrs. Feely was high-strung and anxious at times, and even depressed, but Stansberry chalked it up to the worry over Bobby's illness. He was the loveliest child I ever nursed she said. One thing that Arts and the police could agree on was that Eleanor, Bobby, and Jan had been dead for hours. On Friday afternoon, a devastated Martin Feely returned to Pittsburgh by train and was met by several friends, including John Dombach, who escorted Martin to the Homicide Bureau. Eleanor would have never done this, was all he could manage to say, during his questioning by Sergeant Ralph Barton of the Homicide Squad, Martin held his hands to his forehead as if in tremendous pain. I knew her. I lived with her for 12 years. She was not the kind of woman to do a radical thing like this, he wept. Dazed, he was unable to answer Barton's questions. He kept asking when he could go get the bodies of his wife and children. Finding it unbearable to return to his home, he stayed with his closest friend, Austin Group and vowed that he would never set foot inside his home ever again. At Group's home on Shady Avenue, Martin sought total isolation. His meals were brought to his room by a neighbor, though he made a telephone call to his wife's sister in Delaware, who had married one of his old friends from college. He did return later to his South Braddock Street home briefly, but he refused to enter the room where the killings took place and refused to speak to reporters. 
Another person who wasn't satisfied with the murder-suicide theory was Pittsburgh's mayor, William N. McNair, who had recently made headlines for being arrested after refusing a judge's order to refund a fine he had unlawfully assessed a citizen. The unapologetic McNair, who fashioned himself a champion of the little guy, had a confrontational relationship with city council and the police department, which began as soon as he was sworn into office in 1934. At one point, McNair became so disillusioned with Pittsburgh politics that he set up his office in the lobby of City Hall to demonstrate his independence from the city bureaucracy. McNair also butted heads frequently with Governor Earle, who, a year before the Feely murders, cut off funding to the city over a dispute with the mayor. After the detectives left the crime scene, McNair decided that he wasn't content to sit on the sidelines. Accompanied by his wife and sister-in-law, McNair entered the property on Friday morning and snooped around. He discovered that a Western Union messenger had inquired for the Feelys on Wednesday night. McNair telephoned the police from a schoolhouse across the street to declare that he was taking charge of the investigation and order them to investigate the nature and origin of this mysterious telegram. He then resumed his sleuthing with Detective Samuel Wheeler. Wheeler, who had his own troubles with city politics, had recently been demoted from inspector to detective and his former position was given to Howard Forner a move which many believed was the act of political cronyism. Wheeler can work a case from the bottom up, promised the mayor when asked about his meddling in the Feely case. Wheeler's a detective and Forner's a politician. When Forner arrived to the crime scene a few hours later, McNair unceremoniously refused to let him inside. As a result, Former and his men had no choice but to wait outside in their car while the mayor and Charles Young searched for additional clues. McNair immediately suspected that the squeaky clean condition of the apartment suggested that the crime scene had been deliberately cleaned up sometime after the murders but before the arrival of the police. Surprisingly, the hapless police department began to make headway in their investigation only after McNair muscled in. It was learned that the landlord had hired two handymen, William Penn of Nimick Place and Charles Davis of Tioga Street, to renovate the apartment while the family was on vacation. With the departure of Mrs. Feely and the children planned for the next morning, it's presumable both men had keys to the property, and, being handyman, this could also explain where the rope, screwdriver, and claw hammer came from. But there was one problem with this theory. Nothing had been stolen from the apartment, and surely the sudden appearance of two unknown men in the dead of night would have elicited cries of alarm from one of the Feelys, if not all three. McNair, however, wasn't about to rule anything out, or anyone. Inspector Forner had to reluctantly admit to the press that he was no longer sure about his suicide theory. The best chance of solving the mystery was the fingerprint found on the hammer but tests revealed that the thumbprint belonged to one of the police officers who had carelessly handled the evidence. This enraged Mayor McNair, who roared, Nothing should have been touched in this house until this mystery was cleaned up, and it looks like a mystery to me. The post-mortem examination performed by Dr. R. M. Hembold provided some additional facts, though it did not provide any answers. The stab wounds which the victims had suffered were not fatal and an additional shallow stab wound was found on Eleanor's chest. Bobby was also found to have a fractured skull, though death was caused by strangulation. 
This could suggest a soft-hearted killer, one who at least had the decency to render the child unconscious before killing him, or it could suggest a highly motivated killer hell-bent on finishing the job. Authorities explored every angle of the case, but no motives or explanations seemed clear. Nothing was stolen from the Feelys' home, there were no signs of financial or domestic troubles, all the members of the family were healthy and of sound mind, and even little Bobby had made a full recovery from his illness. The Feelys had no known enemies, and there was no sign of a forced entry. The two handyman hired by the landlord also had alibis. Martin Feely could offer no information that detectives didn't already know. The only possible explanation was that Eleanor, Jan, and Bobby had been murdered by someone who was known to them, and a bulldog and a bottle of milk might prove this theory. After the murder, landlord Charles Young recalled that his bulldog, Toots, didn't bark during the night of the South Braddock Avenue massacre. If there had been a struggle, we would have heard, said Young. If not, our bulldog, Toots, certainly would. Toots didn't bark at all. According to ballistics expert James Davidson, he saw a full bottle of milk on the kitchen counter, suggesting that Eleanor had brought it inside from the back porch for breakfast that was never eaten. Considering the time of day, the only people who were inside the house when the murder took place was Young, his wife, his teenage son, and his father-in-law. On Saturday, June 20th, two brothers of Mrs. Feely, Robert and Richard Buckley, arrived in Pittsburgh on a charter plane from New York to view their sister's body and urged the police to intensify their search for the killer. At the morgue, they pointed out that Eleanor never used her left hand, which led them to refute the suicide theory. The stab wound on her left temple could not have been self-inflicted, they insisted. John Black, supervisor of the morgue, wasn't so sure. He had seen stranger things during his career. On Sunday, June 21st, a conference was held between investigators and other parties involved in the case. The goal was to reach a consensus, and the meeting was adjourned after it was agreed that the official position was that Eleanor Feely had taken her own life after murdering her children in a fit of insanity. This was based upon one irrefutable fact. Not a single piece of hard evidence pointing to the murder from an outside party had been uncovered. On the other hand, they had been able to recreate a possible scenario supporting the murder-suicide theory. Eleanor, her nerves and mind strained from nursing her sick son back to health, prepared Janice for bed and noticed that she was feverish. The thought of nursing another child back from scarlet fever set her over the edge. She went to the pantry drawer and retrieved a piece of twine which had come into the house around a package from the drugstore. She used half the twine to strangle Janice, but was interrupted by Bobby, who entered the room. She struck him on the head with a hammer before strangling him with the cord of his bathrobe. Next, she stabbed them with the ice pick before stabbing herself first in the chest and then in the temple. Realizing these wounds were only superficial, she took the remaining twine and tied one end to the radiator pipe and the other end around her neck. Twisting the twine around the handle of the hammer like a tourniquet, she finally strangled herself. Upon reenacting this possible scenario, investigators concluded that it would be possible, although awkward, to carry out these actions with the right hand. 
Another interesting fact which emerged from this conference was that the supposed sailor's knot, which doubters claim would not have been used by a woman, police determined that a sweater which Eleanor had been knitting for Bobby at the time of their deaths used the very same type of knot. Following the conference, after just three days of investigation, police announced that they were dropping their probe into the Feely murders. Mayor McNair, incidentally, did not participate in this conference. He resigned on a whim in October and was never again elected to office. No arrests were ever made in the Feely case. No suspects were hauled in for questioning, and the bodies of Eleanor and her children were cremated, the location of their ashes unknown. As for Martin Feely, he resigned from the faculty of the University of Pittsburgh a few years later due to poor health, but eventually moved to New York, where he took a position as chairman of the Health Education Department at Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn. He never remarried and passed away in 1995 at the age of 92. But questions still remain. While the official verdict provided the notoriously inept Pittsburgh police with a neat and tidy solution to a mystery, friends and relatives of the victims insisted that Eleanor did not murder her children before taking her own life, offering these unanswered questions to bolster their claims. In one photo of the crime scene taken by the deputy coroner, a bloody towel was seen hanging over the edge of Janice's crib. The towel did not appear in the photos taken at the scene six hours later by police. So what happened to the towel? Martin Feely and Nurse Stansberry both claimed that they had never seen the ice pick before. So how did it get inside the house? What do I believe happened? My opinion is that the victims were murdered by someone who knew the family intimately and visited the home often. This would explain why the landlord's dog did not bark, why none of the neighbors heard any commotion, and why none of the victims put up a struggle. They knew and trusted their murderer. Eleanor was strangled first as she was beginning to prepare breakfast, thus explaining the dishes and the butcher knife on the table and the milk bottle on the counter. The children were still sleeping and hadn't awakened because there was no noise to wake them. Janice was the next victim and it's likely that Bobby began to stir as she was being strangled, which is why he had been struck in the skull with a hammer. The murder was premeditated, with the killer bringing an ice pick to use in case the twine wasn't inside the drawer where it was usually kept. If this wasn't the case, she surely would have used the butcher knife. And I say she, because the killer was most likely a right-handed female. The average adult skull is 7 millimeters thick, and it would have taken a mighty plunge to penetrate a skull with an ice pick, even a child's skull. This would explain why none of the stab wounds were sufficiently deep enough to be fatal, even with the benefit of the added momentum from a downward stab. If the sailor's knot used on the victim was also for knitting, then it stands to reason that the killer was a female. The timing of the crime, pre-dawn morning on the day of their planned departure for New Jersey, suggests that the killer knew Martin's itinerary and knew that he was safely out of the picture in New Jersey. Something only a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh would know. Remember the note that Martin left for his secretary? My guess to the killer's identity? The person who had agreed to give Eleanor and the children a ride to the train station. Surely, this would have been a more convenient arrangement than driving the family's car and paying for long-term parking, and less worrisome to the doting husband than having Eleanor drive 342 miles to Pottersville. As for the motive, it could only be a case of a woman deranged by unreturned love. The fiercely loyal and ruggedly attractive physical education professor had shunned her advances. 
If I can't have him, then neither can she, the killer might have said, with wild jealousy. She waited for the perfect opportunity to slay Eleanor. The children were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Since financial gain wasn't the motive, nothing was stolen, no items inside the apartment were out of place, and none of the doors or windows were pried open, it all fits. In order to find the killer, all you have to do is find the lovelorn, right-handed woman from the university's physical education department who loved knitting. If you enjoyed this podcast, pick up a copy of my newest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 3, available now at www.sunburypress.com. Volume 3 features 30 remarkable but true stories from every corner of the Keystone State. And be sure to visit my blog, paoddities.blogspot.com, for over 600 bizarre tales of murder and mystery from the colonial era to the present day. The Pennsylvania Oddities podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Listen to the Pennsylvania Oddities podcast on Anchor, Breaker, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite program. New episodes on a 1st and 15th of every month. Bye-bye.